Podcastle, episode 131 for November 16th, 2010. Skatianis by Nick Mamatas. Rated R for language. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson, and I'm going to tell you all up front, we've got some pretty funny shit for you this week. It's a story about the place where the old ways intersect with the new ways. Scatianis by Nick Mamatas is kind of a coming-of-age story, kind of a romance, and totally hilarious. Nick Mamatas gave us a bio, and I'll get to that in a minute. First, let me talk to you about some recent news. You may have heard about the Cook Source scandal, where an editor ripped off Monica Gaudio's article on medieval apple tarts, published it in her magazine Cook Source, and when Gaudio notified the editor and asked a donation be made to a charity in lieu of pay, said editor had the goal to tell her that the internet is public domain, don't you know? And the author should be thanking her that they didn't lift the article and put someone else's name on it, and that she should be happy the editor didn't charge her. Well, Nick Mamatas, the internet's most cynical superhero, was the first person to cry foul. Eventually, his outrage inspired others, such as John Scalzi, Neil Gaiman, Will Wheaton, and even CNN.com, all who agreed that, no, the internet is not actually public domain, and by the way, that's stealing. Turns out Cook's source also stole from other people, including Martha Stewart, Paula Dean, and other foodie celebrities who could actually afford lawyers. Note to Cook's source, you fell for one of the classic blunders. Never get into an internet dispute with Nick Mamatas when writers' rights are on the line. <laughs> oh, sorry. Let's talk bio. Nick's the author of over 60 short stories and three novels, the most recent of which, Sensation, was published in 2011 by PM Press. He also wrote Move Underground, a novel featuring Jack Kerouac versus Cthulhu. Need I say more? How about awesome? With Alan Dallow, he's the co-editor of Haunted Legends, an anthology of retold true ghost stories. Five days a week, Nick edits Hikasoru, an imprint dedicated to publishing Japanese science fiction and fantasy in translation. Something Nick didn't mention in his bio, but I feel compelled to share with you all, his special powers that when the great literary versus genre debate rears its ugly head online, and someone mentions James Joyce being inferior to, well, pick somebody, Nick Mamatas gets paid $5. Just like that. Don't ask how or why. All you need to know is that's how the world functions these days. The story is read for you by David O. Ingolstadt, who last read for us way too long ago The Fireman's Ferry. He's a writer with a day job living in Madison, Wisconsin, and is currently finishing work on his latest novel, The Fantasy. So mind your parents, even when they tell you all kinds of bizarre cultural anecdotes, and enjoy the story. Scatuyanis by Nick Mamatas There's a game I used to like to play whenever I met another Greek person. I'd sidle up to her, or sometimes him, at a party and ask, So, Greek, huh? What did your father come to this country with? We always know, and the more pathetic, the better. Fifty dollars, two suitcases filled with nothing but underwear, and the phone number of a cousin that had been disconnected the month before, one girl told me. 
ten bottles of ouzo in the false bottom of a steamer trunk, a Greek to English dictionary so old Aftokinito, that's car by the way, wasn't in it, four changes of underwear, and a pocket watch he hocked for twenty bucks. That's what my friend Costas listed when I first met him in college. His papa didn't get a new watch until decades later, and when he did, it was a mini-atomic clock that was smarter than his son. I usually won the game. My father had only a cardboard suitcase, $20, some fascist propaganda workbook about a family of pipe-smoking and pie-baking stick figures named the Taylors, two bottles of Rezina, he has about a fifth of one left and threatens to make me drink it at my wedding, and three pairs of underwear. He brought something else with him, too. When I was a kid, it was just a nonsense word to scream at my sister and cousins as we ran around the backyard, or a boogeyman threat used to get compliance. Eat your Horta or Scatianus will take you away to live with him, my father would say. And who would want to go off and live with shitty John, the guy who dug outhouses and septic pits back in my father's little mountain village? Not me. So I choked down my greens and hoped he'd stay away. And he did. Until I grew up. The first time Scatianis made an appearance was the morning of the SATs. I had just started the ignition and was pulling out of the driveway when the ground gave way. It felt like I'd hit a speed bump or a kid. Then it all went black. The edge of a shovel and a drizzle of broken glass woke me up. He was there, a silhouette with the sun behind his head, branches and telephone wires crisscrossing the sky, poking away at the windshield of my car, which was standing nearly straight up, the trunk and back seat in the sinkhole left by the collapsed septic tank. A mostly empty septic tank. The shovel came down hard. I woke up in the hospital three days later, my first year's tuition already spent on a new septic tank and driveway, plus the medical bills. If there were big muddy footprints all around the front yard, they'd been swept away before the doctors let me go home. Old, empty septic tanks collapse all the time, you know. It was another two seasons of mowing lawns for the little old ladies my mother knew from church before I actually got to go to school. I liked college, even though SUNY Purchase was only in Westchester and I was expected home every weekend. Actually, I just liked having friends who weren't also cousins for once, which I could have, as long as I followed every family rule and came home immediately every weekend. No parties, no days away. I met a girl named Sarah and was allowed to bring her back home for Easter. Hello, Sarah, my mother said, the name itself heavy on her tongue. I think Sarah was the first Jewish person ever to set foot in the house. It didn't help when Sarah explained that she really was an atheist and just culturally Jewish after my mother warned her that the pasitio had both meat and cheese in it. Scatianis had had enough, and every sink and tub in the house exploded with brown, gurgling filth. I spent the evening in the basement with my father shoveling liquid shit while my mother and sister stared daggers across the table at Sarah. First you bring home a tzina my father said, and then she's Jewish, and then she flushed the paper down the toilet and flooded the house. My father had a paranoid fear of both Jewish people and two-ply toilet paper. Of course, we were ankle-deep in crap, so the latter probably wasn't that paranoid after all. I was starting to be, though, since Sarah hadn't used the bathroom at all. The backup had just happened by itself. She drove us back to campus that night after unilaterally deciding that we were not going to stay over and made me sit in the back seat because I smelled. She only spoke to me once on the trip home, her sneering face reflected in the rearview mirror when she hissed, I missed spring break for that. Scoutiani struck again and again. I got a job interview in California once, but someone started a fire in the airplane's restroom. 
We were held in Kansas, I missed my connecting flight, and somebody else got the job. Back home with the folks for me. I applied for a semester overseas in Africa to dig some wells and teach English. Why not volunteer in Greece, my father demanded. We're the poorest in Europe. Greeks are the est in everything, you know. But a cholera outbreak kept me on this side of the ocean. After the outbreak, nanotechnology took care of well digging, and a generation of college adventurers became obsolete. That summer, when I was working down by the water in the rental kiosk of a motorboat place, I met the girl who would save me. Her name was Terilyn, and she said, Yep, without frowning when I asked her if her parents had really given her that name. Terry was a hippy-dippy type. She sold homemade gelato from a wooden cart on the pier and wore tie-dyed shirts from the local tourist trap souvenir stores every day. Long hair, too, straight instead of high, unlike everyone else on the North Shore. I spent my day in a kiosk with rows of keys on hooks on one wall and nothing to entertain me but watching Terry. Since massive amounts of sewage from the other side of the sound were following the waters that summer, and only research vessels were allowed to trawl the bay on most days, neither of us was very busy. I just love Greek mythology, Terilyn told me one day. She held out a small cup of gelato, the top of the scoop already melting down the sides and over her fingers. If I wanted a freebie, I'd have to be all exotic and entertaining. I did the bits of the Iliad I remembered from Greek school. I did Jason and the Argonauts, the Ray Harryhausen version anyway, Daedalus and Ikaros, even ending it with, and that's why you should always listen to your father and never try to fly away, as my own papa told it when I was a kid. I got a lot of free gelato that week, but then ran out of bullshit myths and dipped into the family folklore. You know why I'm wearing jeans today? I asked Terilyn that Friday. It was 97 degrees outside, and even hotter in the little tin booth I stood around in all day. The gelato was already a puddle on the counter in front of me. You're wearing jeans? I thought you were always naked from the waist down in there, Terilyn said. She leaned over the counter to take a look. She was cute. I walked out of the house with shorts, but my mother threw a fit. She didn't want me to jinx the weather and make it rain. Jeez, I'm wearing shorts too, George. Am I going to make it rain? Nope. Just me. This I gotta see. She was back three minutes later with a pair of cheap shorts, the kind with the words Port Jefferson and a picture of a seagull stitched onto one leg. I changed into them in the kiosk, wanting to, but not looking up, to see if Terilyn was checking me out. Thirty seconds later, big wet drops of rain started smacking the ground like spit. I let Terry get a little wet before opening the kiosk door and inviting her in. She wasn't going to sell any more gelato that day anyway. She told me about her crystals, and I pretended to listen. I asked about her family, and even tried to play the game with her. Well, my great times 15 grandfather came to America with the Mayflower. Does that count? She also swore up and down that she had some real Indian blood. Oneida, she said, a great-great-grandmother who definitely was not kidnapped and raped by her soldier great-great-grandfather. The Tsini loved to believe that shit. Terry was amazed that I spent three years trying to leave town, but couldn't. I finally told her the final myth, the one about Scatianus. Her nose wrinkled in confusion. This was a college-educated woman who told me that I shouldn't eat clams because they have auras, for Christ's sake. But even she wasn't ready to buy the existence of my personal little boogeyman. That's hard to believe. I'm a scientist, she said. You're a scientist? I didn't realize angelology actually counted as a science. 
Marine Sciences at Stony Brook. You think I'm going to sell ice cream my whole life? I wanted to get an internship with the sewage treatment team, but Daddy's going to cut me off on my birthday, so I needed to make some money instead. Then she smiled. What do you think I spent my days staring longingly at before I met you? The guy selling pinwheels? He's gay, you know. I laughed. She frowned. Liberals. No, the treatment vessels, the ones trawling the sound with the nanotech, experimental stuff to break down the pollution. You know, little, yes, dwarf machines, teensy even. Nanotechnology is all Greek root words, you know. Look, let's test your theory out, like we did with the shorts, she said. Are you ready to move out of your parents' house? Daddy has an apartment in the city. It's empty, and he's a rich fucker anyway. You can live there until you find a real job. She was about to say something else, but I was too busy grabbing and kissing her hard. We arranged to meet late that night, long after the day trippers had gone back home and the last chocolate shop shuttered. I picked the perfect spot, right on the pier where Main Street met Route 25, where the big traffic sign proclaiming New York City 54 miles stood to guide the tourists back home. Only 54 miles and a lifetime away. Terrilyn was going to pick me up and drive into Manhattan, and if something scatological happened to either her or me, well, then we'd see what we'd try next. It wasn't Scatianus, but my superego that almost stopped me. I packed my bags, got my checkbooks ready, and stowed everything under my bed. My mother had done all my laundry, as usual, and dinner was great, as usual, but I could barely eat or think. Papa and Mama were all smiles for a change, but I could only see their rage-filled eyes. They didn't need to scream at me about my secret plan to leave them all alone. Their voices in my head, always nagging, always shrieking, did it for them. I went upstairs to finish packing. My hands shook as I folded my underwear. I tiptoed to the bathroom and puked as quietly as I could. Mama wasn't above barging into the bathroom if she thought her only chance for grandchildren was dying on the tiles. Then there was a Terrilyn factor. She was a rich girl, obviously slumming to piss off Daddy as part of her own war against parents. She could get bored at any time and just cut me off. Hell, she could even drive out tonight, maybe in a big red convertible with her real boyfriend in the passenger seat. I imagined him wearing a pink polo shirt and sunglasses at night like a million teen movie heavies, her hippie clothes gone and replaced with a chic look and passed me by, pointing and laughing as they zipped out of town to fuck on Daddy's expensive leather couch, the one I was planning on sleeping on while Terrilyn took the bedroom. I didn't even think about Scatianus until Terrilyn was already half an hour late. The creaking of old wheels and the heavy limping clomp of a donkey barely registered over the waves of the sound and the grinding engine of the only boat left puttering around near the marina. I turned and there he was, right on Route 25, blocking both lanes, the only thing between Manhattan and me. The cart was low and wide, with two huge wheels, easy to fill with dirt and shit, easy to tip and unload. The donkey was enormously fat, nearly as broad as the cart, and it had a friggin' horned hump, with thick leather straps wrapped all around its heavily muscled flanks. It lowered its head more like a bull than anything else, and exhaled stinking brimstone, little huffed clouds lit by its round red eyes. And there was Scantuyanus, so tall and thin like a wiry statue, wearing shit-stained rags, a vest and baggy pants, like what my great-grandfather wore in that one photo we have of him. He stood up and raised his shovel high. I half expected lightning to come out of it, but instead he just spoke. One word, 
like water burbling out of a crack in old sewer pipes. Oh, No. No explanation, no threat, just a single word, the word of law. That's how a palicari, a real man, gets his way. Never apologize, never explain, just demand respect with plenty of macho to back you up, and you'll get your way. Well, I was scared shitless, but it was time for me to grow up and be a palicari too. I rolled my shoulders and let the duffel bags fall to the ground, then walked out onto the road, right to the yellow traffic lines. I had no idea what I was planning on doing. I couldn't bring myself to look at Scottianis, so I made a bit of a show of turning away to spit on the ground. My heart was pumping to muscles. I didn't even know I had. My eyes must have been swimming in red, too. I held up my palm and showed it to him. That's the Greek way of giving somebody the finger. Bring it! In English, another insult, that. My throat was a little too dry to sound tough or dramatic, but Scottianus got the gist of it. And he brought it. Still standing, he smacked his donkey's rump with the shovel, and they came barreling toward me, cartwheels spinning madly. Then an engine roared to life on the other side of the road. Halogen high beams flooded the swiftly shrinking gap between me and death. I threw up a hand, but the donkey could only twist his head and run off to the side, half-blind. I still would have been crushed if 30,000 gelato sales worth of steel-gray PT cruiser, Terrellin at the wheel, hadn't smacked hard into the side of the cart, cracking its right wheel. Scottianus fell over, promising heaven that he was going to kill me and fuck the Virgin Mary. Get in! Get your bags! Terry screamed as she threw the car into reverse. The donkey cart was tottering on a wheel and a half, but Scottianus was up quickly and leapt under the hood of the car, shovel high. I grabbed my duffel and swung it, slamming the back of the man's knees. Terry hit the gas hard and jerked the car right out from under him. I stupidly tossed my bag in through the open passenger side window before trying to jump in myself and got an ankle full of shovel to thank for it. I fell hard and right in the path of the donkey's fat, shit-covered hooves. I rolled over onto Scottianus and pulled him on top of me. God, he smelled. He was much stronger than I was, but I was not so much the palicari that I wouldn't cheat. I need him in the balls a good half-dozen times, and slipped out from under him. I limped to the curb and waved for Terry, who was ripping up her tires as she pushed against the cart. The donkey had managed to block the road. Scottianus took to his feet, clambered up the cart from the back, and raised his shovel again, ready to cave in Terrellin's roof and her head. The Greek language is a very old one. So old, in fact, that it has a single word that literally means a chronic masturbator so prolific that he's managed to make himself mentally retarded. I used it now. Hey, Malaka, come and get me. I waved my arms and hobbled towards the edge of the pier where the only thing between a body and the dark water, frothing with sewage and God knows what science junk, was common sense. The tilting cart rolled towards me again, Terry's crippled car right behind it. I grabbed a rope and jumped, swinging under the edge of the dock. The clattering above me stopped short. I caught a glimpse of soiled hoof hanging right over the ledge. Then the car hit them, and Scottianus, the donkey, and the splintered shit cart sailed past me and into the Long Island Sound. Sewage-eating nanotechnology did the rest. I shouted, Ha! Welcome to America, shithead! How do you like that? To the churning water below, over and over again. Welcome to America! Welcome to America! All the little buggers broke the crap spirit down, molecule by molecule, the water brown and frothing like crazy. 
Technology over magic. Modernity over tradition. I squeezed a few salt tears into the estuary and then climbed up the rope. Terrilyn was okay, but the car was a wreck. I leaned on her for the whole mile walk up to the Long Island Railroad stop, and then I slept till we got to Huntington where we had to transfer to the train for Penn Station. They have molecule-sized robots that can eat both sewage and magical boogeymen, but they still haven't electrified the commuter rail all the way out to Port Jeff. Like my father would say, what a country. I have a new game I play when I meet a Greek person now. I don't ask, so, what did your father bring to this country? I ask, so, how long did it take for your parents to realize they're not living in the Horio, that's village, by the way, anymore? The stories are mostly a lot funnier now. Most of them never get it. Our parents are still full of nervous daily warnings to never take the subways. Financial advice like, keep your money in a bucket, buckets never go bankrupt and endless demands for grandchildren. Their little hands are needed to milk imaginary goats. It's okay. They don't need to get it. I get it, though. There is some wisdom in the old ways, and a lot of foolishness in the modern world. But you have to pick and choose. I choose Manhattan, even though that terrifies my parents. I choose the modern world. Of course, I still don't wear shorts in the summer, unless there is a drought warning, and the city can use a little rain. And welcome back. Welcome to America. The hell with that. Welcome to Podcastle. The perfect marriage of the old and the new. Now with nanotech. And kind of amusingly, we're going to go the complete opposite end of the spectrum for feedback this week. Ian Butler's Squonk and the Horde of Apprentices, read by Wilson Foley. The story of a dragon, and specifically how his wizard teacher Wendell gets his educating groove back. I think, to generalize, most of our listeners felt like Thomas, who said, Squonk! Awesome! Told my daughter there was a new Squonk story, she's 15, she actually squeed! Jay Days said, Great story. Pulling off cute talking animals is a totally underrated skill, both for the author and the narrator. Congrats to both. Sweet stories like this are wonderful for making the bitter, harrowing, despairing stories even more bitter, harrowing, and despairing. Nam Nurgles said, Usually I'm not a huge fan of red children's stories. Mainly having two means that children reading in their time, not mine. I want to hear stories for me, but the story had such whimsy humor and the total lack of tentacles around dark corners, well, it gave me a huge grin and a mildly teary eye. I thought Wilson was fab. Indeed, people loved Wilson's reading, especially when it caused them to roll on the floor laughing horribly. Yeah, he did that way better than I do. Fine. Not everyone was a fan, though. Dame said, oh, I'm a grump. I didn't like this story much. It's all right, Dame. You can't love them all. Wintermute wanted to know when the collected Squonk picture book would be available, and I'd just like to say, me too. I think if I had to pick one thing that made me happiest about feedback for this one, though, it'd be hearing from people who hadn't heard the other two Squonk stories, but who absolutely love this one anyway. There are quite a few of you out there, so thanks for all those comments, and thanks for visiting our forum. Tell us what you thought of this week's story at forum.escapeartist.net. 
And if you like what we're doing, please visit podcastle.org and consider making a donation. <laughs> we won't call you a Malika. Well, I won't, at least not to your face, but every single dollar you give goes to keeping our authors paid and allows us to continue to bring a wide variety of awesome fantasy fiction to you each week. If you want something in return, check out poddisc.com and grab a t-shirt or set of archive discs. If you can't do that, tell a friend or a bunch of them, either the old-fashioned way, talking, or using those newfangled social networks that's all the rage for you kids. Either way, thanks. That's all for this time. Thanks for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. Podcastle's made up of associate slushmeister editor Anne Leckie, sound guru Peter Wood, and your lovely and badass editors Anna Schwent and myself, Dave Thompson. For the record, I'm the lovely one. We'll be back next time with not one, not two, but three stories. Until then, keep your minds out of the gutter. Really, keep all of yourself out of the gutter. Watch out for shit boogeymen with shovels and donkey carts. And we'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Jack Kerouac said our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter, the road is life.